Hey everyone, Tyson here, and before we get to today's podcast previewing the Pac-12 men's basketball season with Steve Mims, I first just wanted to remind you that the I-5 Corridor is available online at i5corridor.substack.com. A few good stories up the last couple weeks, one diving into Oregon's offensive efficiency under Justin Herbert, and then just today we have a profile out on Verone McKinley III, Oregon star free safety. There's a couple free ones up there, but to get access to everything, it's $6 a month or $60 a year, and it would be an honor if you just came and checked it out. So once again, that's i5corridor.substack.com, owned and operated by me, Tyson Alger. And let's just get to the podcast. Here's Steve. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider. Three, two, and one. Everyone, and welcome to another episode of the I-5 Corridor podcast. Tyson Alger here. No Aiden today, but I'm really happy to have a guest on. It's, it's Steve Mims. You may remember him from the Register Guard, or maybe he sells you your insurance. But uh, if you're driving around Eugene lately, you've been able to hear him a lot on the radio, which is great because Steve's got a fantastic voice for that. Steve, uh, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the voice compliments. <laughs> for a long time, it was my writing people compliment. I'm trying to get used to now being more of a voice person. Well, I mean, you've always, I mean, you've rarely needed the mic for it. You know, we'd be in those post-game press conferences after uh, <laughs> after games and they give you the mic. And uh, I think you blew out the speakers a couple of times there, Steve. <laughs> yeah, they, they stopped giving me the mic after a while, or at least I'd have to deal with you and uh, you and Quick or somebody afterwards making fun of me for it. So I, no, I learned that, to, to that, quiet that, down. That doesn't sound like us at all. I, I, I from, from all accounts, Jason Quick is a very nice person who would... <laughs> so... I wanted to catch up with you this week because it's it's basketball, it's Pac-12 basketball media days. They happened this week in San Francisco. Uh, neither of us were at it, which kind of made me nostalgic for the times where we used to travel around uh, uh, doing the Pac-12 circuit together when I covered the Ducks uh, basketball team for the Oregonian and you were with the Register Guard. And um, as someone who also didn't get to experience it this year, uh, what's it like not going on basketball road trips? <laughs> yeah. I was a little nostalgic on that one yesterday too. Um, although then I realized that the register guard didn't send anybody. So it's not like I would have been going anyway, but yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I talked to Matt Preen today and he did the old uh, 5.30 in the morning fly out and uh, 5.30 at night fly back. So I didn't miss that one, but uh, I used to have a nice little setup. I would stay out in Vallejo. There was a little brewery out there called Mare Island Brewing. So I'd grab a little hotel by there and then get on a ferry in the morning and the ferry would give you like an hour over and so you could start writing your you know like the media poll would come out at eight in the morning oh, yeah. and I'd be on the ferry and then it would land right at the embarcadero and walk up to pac 12 network and then you could write your stories on the ferry ride back and there was a brewery waiting for you at the finish so i i must admit i uh, i got a little sentimental for that yesterday that's a, that's a veteran move i remember my first media day down there and uh for those who don't know that the pac 12 headquarters is like right in downtown san francisco and they decided to do these things like right in the middle of uh <laughs> right in the middle of the work week work day and i i had rented a car i've never really driven around san francisco before and 
uh, I think we finished up around like 4 p.m. and I had like a 7.30 flight and I think I missed my flight because it took me like, it took me legitimately like an hour and a half to get out of, out of like the main two blocks from, <laughs> from the, the, the damn uh, headquarters because I mean, just San Francisco is ridiculous. So anyway, some, some flashbacks from, from that one. <laughs> well, imagine it almost overlapped with the giant stadiums a quarter of a mile from there. Can you imagine right. if media day was set for, you know, today when game five of the NLCS is going on, that would have been a, uh, would have been a cool spot to be, but you wouldn't want to be driving. I, I'm, I'm curious as someone who, uh, who, who covered a, a division one, a, a major division one basketball beat for, you know, going on a decade. How do you view the Pac-12 conference, especially like in its, in its current, and in, in not necessarily from the football lens that I think that everyone always puts it through, but just from a men's basketball perspective, uh, you, you have one team in Oregon who's consistently a sweet 16 contender, Oregon State kind of showed that it, it, it can make a run or so, but like is, is Pac-12 basketball in a better place than, than football is? They're certainly going to brag about it, and they should, you know, I mean, last year having the what was it three in the elite eight and four in the sweet 16. And I mean, Oregon loses to USC. So um, this is kind of their year to puff out their chest. And then you go into this year with, you know, UCLA looking like a legitimate contender. I think Oregon's up there as well and USC, you know, and then fourth, you've got that, you know, Oregon state, but I think they've got three legit top 25s. I would say that the coaches and those programs are in better shape than football right now. I mean, I look at PAC 12 football and think other than Oregon, Name me a program on the rise. I mean, Oregon State's on the rise and, and going up, but, right. you know, I mean, Utah, they're kind of down. You know, there's Colorado, Washington State, Cal are always down. I mean, Washington you, and USC are down. It's like, I, I just feel like there's no team rising, whereas at least in basketball, you can say the Beavs have become a, a, a playoff contender. The Ducks have always been there, and you got USC and UCLA both there right now. I mean, even on the football side, like the only other team that you could really make a case for would be maybe Arizona State. And, and who knows what the hell happens with them once, you know, the NCAA finishes up with uh, with all their kind of recruiting violations and stuff. So, um, yeah, it was I, one thing that I always liked and, and it's kind of looks a little different now in retrospect, but I always loved kind of the the friendly but very uh, competitive rivalry between like Dana Altman and Sean Miller. And, and you could always kind of see that mutual respect between the Oregon and, and the Arizona programs, uh, not only during media days, but when they played each other in the run-ups. Like who, now that he's not leading that Arizona program, is it is it basically, is it UCLA? Does that come up as, as Oregon's, like who's going to be Oregon's big rival kind of going forward? Yeah, I would think so, because, I mean, if you're looking, I mean, Oregon State right now, I mean, this is kind of the yeah. first time now that Oregon and Oregon State have been kind of on equal footing, I'd say. Um, you know, you thought Hopkins was going to get there with Washington, but that's become a train wreck. So, I mean, I, I think if you're Altman, yeah, I mean, suddenly the state becomes, you know, uh, in play. But also, yeah, I mean, who knows how long Lloyd takes till Arizona gets going. And, and Cronin looks like he's got it to where that should be not a one or two year thing, but kind of back to traditional UCLA. Right. So I, I think. UCLA has replaced Arizona as the fate, you know, as kind of the big name team in the conference, which of course it was before it was Arizona too. When, when you started covering Oregon basketball, did you think that, that this was going to be, that they were going to be able to sustain this type of kind of success that Altman has? I mean, I, I forget what the exact numbers are, but they've been to the NCAA tournament at least, I think is it eight times in his 11 seasons. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it was, you know, and and we were kind of there at the start of sort of the grad transfer and the eligible right away transfers to where you thought, you know, boy, this isn't Dane Altman basketball. He's he's best when he has three and four year guys that he's been able to work with and practice. And, 
he always sucked kind of, you know, the Creighton type thing where he kind of builds these teams of kind of under-recruited guys and turns them into something. And I mean, how sustainable is it for Dane Altman to be going out and pulling in one and dones and this and that. And, uh, you know, he, he just turned into the chameleon. It wasn't yeah. the guy that we thought, you know, was kind of stuck in his ways and kind of all shucks type uh, has been as good as anybody in the country at not only getting the five-star guys, but becoming a spot. And I think he's done a nice job of every time he's gotten one of those grad transfers, he's pretty much played them and they've had a good experience and that's paid off to where they, nobody, when they're looking at it says, Oh, that guy went there and kind of got buried on the bench. I think Dane has done a nice job of always bringing in guys who he knows he can play for him. And that becomes more attractive to the next year's one. It's, it's fascinating to watch because I don't think there's a coach at Oregon that kind of knows their, what their kind of program is more than Dana does with, with that, the men's basketball program there are kind of like his system and, and their brand. But at the same time, like you said, for, for a guy that seems like so uh, publicly stuck in his ways, whether it's just kind of like the, you know, the, the guarded, we're not going to do a whole lot of media and we're not going to make it, make a big brand out of ourselves. Like he, he's so able to kind of adjust and, and shape his rosters around like what talent they have available. And it's, it, it's, it's pretty impressive to watch that way that, you know, where you might think some coaches in other sports are, are kind of stubborn in their ways. Like Dana's been able to adapt really well, especially for a coach who's, I believe, like 63 now. And to always be able to do it. It's like you would have thought that at some point, you know, because every year, you know, you, they lose, you know, I mean, Kenny Wooten unexpected, Luke King, you know, it's like they lose maybe more guys than you thought. And you're like, well, I mean, one of these years, they're just going to fail to get three great grad trim. I mean, there's going to be a year where they end up with a six and 12 and, you know, a 10 and 21 type team, just because they couldn't rebuild on the fly, because that seems like a impossible thing to do seven, eight years in a row, but there's never been that one. I mean, in fact, the only one that didn't make it, you know, was that Peyton Pritchard sophomore year coming after the final four, but then they got right back after that. So there just has never been, you would think in kind of the way they're doing it, there would be, you know, you'd have maybe three good on and, and one off and just to never have an off and to always have that thing back. Um, and fully loaded, and once again this year is kind of the remarkable part to me. That, that that's why when I look at their roster this year, and I, I still I still need to do a better kind of like deep dive on on all the pieces they have. But again, Dana brought in some transfers. He's got a couple of big time freshmen, and the reason why I like it all is because you have a guy like Will Richardson who feels like he's Will Richardson feels like the new Peyton Pritchard in that he's been in college for like eight nine nine years now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just it, it seems like just like whenever Dana has like that type of player in his system that like he knows knows it in and out, and, and it was you know Pritchard before, and you know those three those three guys that came up within the Final Four like with Brooks and and Benson and and Bell. Uh, it, it just seems like this. This could be one of those teams that, that Dana has a pretty good feel for, uh, maybe even earlier than uh, than expected. Yeah, it seems like, and like I said, I mean, three they have three transfers who are all all conference in a major conference. I mean, Joe Young's brother was ACC, a kid from Oklahoma who's Big Twelve, and or and then Syracuse ACC, and then uh, Rutgers was Big Ten. So he's literally brought in an all Big Ten and all Big Twelve and an all ACC player for your three grad transfers. And like you say, if you can do that and then you just have any semblance of guys coming back and with Richardson and if Dante ever gets healthy, he does. Um, that's, I mean, I, I can't imagine to me who have pulled in three all-conference players on your grad transfer list, just because normally once some grad transfer sees two new guys there like that, they're going to say, I got to go somewhere else. There's not enough balls to go around. But Dana can kind of always convince them and, and kind of has the proof and on the paper of what's kind of worked out for those guys. What's... uh 
kind of during that run, the uh, the the Brooks Bell Dorsey the, those three four years. Do you have a, do you have a favorite kind of moment or quote or press conference or even just trip from all that? Like I, I know one of my favorites was when you and I were in, in Salt Lake. It was for the infamous uh, Dylan Brooks <laughs> flop game. Yes, um, and, and and so that that's that's just like a, a fun unique one for me. But like, what do you kind of go back to when you're feeling nostalgic for for that run? Yeah, the flop game was good because you remember he Dana or Dana wasn't going to have Dylan do any interviews with us. He was going to do just Jerry Allen, but we happened to be coming out as he was running in, and we grabbed him, and he was more than happy to stop and talk. And uh, so that was a good one. I look back at the, you know, I remember too the the uh, Elite Eight run that ends in Anaheim and that game against Duke with Kobe Bryant in the crowd. Yeah, you know, they they get the Sweet Sixteen. They're playing Duke and Kobe Bryant's there, and it just becomes kind of this surreal moment that like. Holy cow! That you know, Oregon's good enough to beat Duke, and Kobe Bryant's in the crowd for that. So, and then that was one moment, and then just the Kansas one, going to Kansas City and and beating Kansas because I remember going there, and you know they they win the first one, and Kansas wins, and you're just thinking that was a heck of a run. But you know that's a good Kansas team. You're not going to beat them much less in Kansas City, and then to to have it go the way it did, where they just dominated them. It was one of those where, and you know this. When you're in the tournaments and they're in those second games of the weekend, your next weekend flights are kind of dependent on it. So I remember like Austin Meek and I were like, we're not booking a trip to the final four. They're playing, you know, and by halftime, I'm walking over to Austin going, do we need to start looking at flights here or this and that? You know, it's just like you're always kind of, you know, enjoying the moment. But then you're suddenly like, oh, crud, now I got to go ahead and get that flight booked for the final four type thing. So I think I'll I... always remember that Kansas one just thinking, no, we're not booking and then realizing, holy cow, they're really going to control this game you know, from, from minute one to 40 against Kansas in Kansas city. I, I think I remember booking with like eight minutes left in the second half and flights were already very, I mean, it was like 800 round trip from like Portland to Phoenix. I was like, yeah. why? why? <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 I agree with you though. I think that was one of the most um, shocking results that I've, I've seen just because I remember um, so in, in that arena, the, the press room was just kind of through one of the tunnels, pretty adjacent to the crowd. And I remember writing, I think it was my game story, like after the, the sweet 16 round. Um, uh, and as I was writing it, Kansas was out there playing, I think maybe they were playing Purdue and you could just hear the crowd for the Kansas crowd during that game. And it was like, mm -hmm. Oh my God, like, I don't know how Oregon's going to be able to like do anything against it. Cause it, it was just it sounded like a tornado was like pretty like it was it was awfully impressive and for them to uh i think maybe like two percent of that crowd that night ended up being oregon fans and, and that was uh yeah that was the most shocking result i think i've been a part of yeah and then you know the most unforgettable one is then the following week you go and it's oregon north carolina i mean we're in a football stadium watching a basketball game and again it's right there and you you know the you know, the, obviously the, the, the rebound that gets away, Jordan Bell doesn't get it, but just the Jordan Bell in that locker room and just, oh, you know, man. the tears and kind of what that locker room felt like, I'll never forget that moment either. And just kind of being on, you know, sitting right behind Jim Nance and, and Bill Rafferty on there. And then kind of the way that game goes, and it looks like, God, they might win that one too. And we're finally going to get Oregon Gonzaga, this game we'd always wanted. It's going to happen in the national title game. And then, you know, Roy rocks away again in that Oregon locker room. That was, that was kind of a, an unforgettable three weeks there. It was, uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't have possibly had a better seat from that. I was in the second row, like right on, uh, like right, right mid court. And then the two other Oregonian seats, which were for Greif and Canzano. I think Greif was behind the end zone behind the CBS stage. 
and just had basically Charles Barkley in front of him the entire time. That's where I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and then on the other end, it was I think Gonzano was up in the other end zone and you basically couldn't see anything. And, and here I am somehow uh, midcourt, like behind me was like, uh, oh my God, why can't I think of his name? Virginia's coach. Tony Bennett. Uh, yeah, I had better seats than Tony Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was that was definitely one of those like like what the like how the hell did I get here moments. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I was that one behind Charles and then I always remember Michael Wilbon who lives in Arizona kept walking down every commercial break Wilbon would go walking right down past me and go tell Charles something and then go back up to his seat. So after the game I remember seeing Odell Beckham kind of just in the little hallway there. It was just, you know, celebrity villa. That was a uh... That, that was such a cool run to cover just because, I mean, obviously football is the straw that stirs the drink in, in college sports, but um, one, there's like, there's a hundred players on a football team. And, and so it's kind of hard to kind of like follow the storylines of, of a complete team like that. But to be able to, um, my, my first year covering Oregon basketball was the, the was Brooks, Brooks and Bell's uh, freshman year, like the year after, like all the players got, expelled yeah. from the program and it was kind of a bot what was perceived as a bottoming out period for the ducks and uh um it, it was just super rewarding being able to kind of cover that entire run and then conclude it with uh um kind of that scene in the locker room after they lost that i i think that's probably my most uh probably like my most proud achievement of my career so far was kind of chronicling that um yeah it was that it was wild <laughs> yeah no i think that brooks bell should have in retrospect now that year when everybody gets run off, it's basically Joe Young, Jaleel Abdul Bassett, and they bring in like Dylan Brooks late as like an early entry type guy. And you're thinking this is the year, but you know, like you say, it bottoms out. The fact he got that team to the tournament and almost, you know, a loss to a top seeded Wisconsin away from the Sweet 16 probably should have been our message right there that all right, this beat's gonna end up in the NC2A tournament every year. I I think uh I don't think if, if you were to take a player who's hot in a game, I don't think there was any player who got hotter than Joe Young. Like that, that way, like that guy could just take over a game. And what a great interview too. I mean, you talk about a guy who just was awesome to talk to. He, he enjoyed it. And uh, he, you know, he'd be post, I remember, you know, they'd be on the road and he'd be posting like grind time at the locker <laughs> or in the weight room at the hotel at like six in the morning. And um, yeah, I mean, he kind of wore his heart on his sleeve there and, and uh yeah, Joe Young was uh, like I was. I was wondering that the brother coming here now would be interesting to see if he's got kind of that same personality because Joe Young certainly had it. I, well, I I still text occasionally with uh, former former Oregon assistant athletic director director Craig Pintons, who's now the athletic director at LMU, and it was uh, it was Oregon's senior night, and uh, Joe basically you know they they won the game, and then they do like the 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 after game. Uh, celebrations with like the players parents and everything and and uh, I remember like they go up to like interview Joe Young and he just stole the mic which like <laughs> interviewing 101 is you never let the player take the mic because you're not getting <laughs> back and uh, I think uh, you know Joe starts yelling like duck nation like <laughs> and that just made me laugh because like a, a program like Oregon which is so uh, um, focused on in on all their like hashtags and catchphrase like it wasn't like any of Oregon's like catchphrases and so everyone's <laughs> Joe's catchphrases yeah every once in a while I'll just text I'll text Pinton's uh hashtag duck nation and, and kind of get a laugh out of it yeah I think the uh I think that's uh duck fans will leave the nation to Oregon State and try to uh try to I, I don't hear a lot of duck fans using the duck nation but you're right Joe uh, that was one of Joe's hey who uh when they when his Oregon career is said and done who ended up making a bigger impact 
for their program respectively at Oregon, Chip Kelly or Dana Altman? Well, I think Altman just because, you know, I mean, it's just this, first off, I think he's going to go about 10 more years. I mean, you mentioned he's mid sixties. I think he's going to go until he's 70 something. I I don't see him as a guy who's looking to get out and, you know, the way he's going, you keep getting enough shots at those elite eights. He may end up bringing the national title to, to Oregon before he's done. But I just think the longevity chip was, was great. But I think the fact that it was four years and didn't, you know, got to the title game, but couldn't win it. Um, I think Dana will be the one because of the fact that he's, you know, basketball, people forget basketball was not a, uh, was not an every year tournament type thing for him. I mean, it was 90, what, 97, 96 was the first time in forever. And then it goes, you know, Ernie would kind of do it once every four and five years. And that was a big deal. Uh, people who are Oregon fans now forget that making the NCAA tournament used to be a, a once every five, six year deal. And, and Dane Altman's made it to the point now to where it's expected every year. It, it, it's fascinating because like you, you look at the college basketball landscape of, you know, the, the quote unquote, like hall of fame coaches and, and you had Roy Williams retire. This is Mike Krzyzewski's f- final year. And um, you know, they obviously had success late in their careers, but they really kind of like staked their claim, you know, decades ago, whereas Altman, who has been very consistently a winner throughout his career, he's doing like a lot of his uh, resume fluffing up here, kind of what you would think it would be in his final years. And I I agree with you. I, I think with the kind of the support staff and the momentum they have, like, like this, I think this is probably just like in the middle of, of what this, this Oregon basketball window is going to be like, he, he could really really become kind of like one of those like name brand coaches even here late in his career. You know, and he'd never say it, but I think numbers and things like that and, you know, history matters to him as well. And I mean, I, I think last I remember a couple of years ago, you know, he was like top 50 all time in wins and, you know, I mean, he could get to the point where he keeps winning 25 a game and does this for 10 more years. I mean, he could be on that top 10 list, top eight oh, list. Gosh, I mean, he could really Steve, put himself into uh, some know, elite yeah. company. Yeah, I mean, Steve, it's just we're trying to win him. <laughs> As I said, he'll never say it, but I got to think he sees, you know, and, and him and Lon Kruger have been going back and forth. Obviously, Lon's done, so he'll pass him now. But uh, most of those guys ahead of him are retired, so they're, they're not winning any more games. And Dana's got, like I said, if he does this eight or nine more years, um, it will not just be an automatic Hall of Fame, but he's going to have his name up there. Uh, you know, he'll be like, he'll be among all-time Pac-12 and NC2A. Hey, um, just just changing topics here a, a little bit um, because this is this was someone who I really didn't know, but kind of seeing the reaction to his his passing really seems like someone that uh, I would have liked to. But um, David Walker, uh, uh, anchor for KVAL for a long time, a big presence in, in Oregon um, high school sports for for decades. Um, again, somebody that I didn't really know, but but I saw that you had done kind of a, a Twitter message about him. And I, and I just wanted to ask you, like, what, what did he kind of mean to kind of not only the Eugene and in that media market, but just kind of overall uh, sports in this state together? Yeah, his sports wise was OSA because he was sort of on that OSA radio network to where, you know, if I'd be up in Corvallis for a 4A or 5A basketball game, you know, Dave Walker was often there or over in Coos Bay at the 3A1. So that's sports wise where I'd see him. And couldn't have been a nicer, you know, as everybody said on, you know, social media afterwards, um, but was also just kind of one of those institutional voices. I think that's one thing that a lot of that newspapers are lacking these days, yeah. certainly, but TV still has is people who have been around for 25 years. And when you turn on the TV, you see the guy and it's the trusted voice that, you know, isn't the yeller and the screamer and isn't the right or the left, but just the guy who's delivering the news to you. And 
to me, that's what David Walker was in this town. And like I say, I got the chance. I was fortunate to get to know him through sports because, you know, I, I don't know a lot of the anchors in town, but fortunately I got to know him through the sports and then we'd run into each other at things and see him, but a wonderful man. And, uh, and yeah, just, uh, it's terrible when you see people pass away at an age like that. Absolutely. Um, what was it like working for Ron Bellamy? That was the best boss I ever had. Best the, boss I could ever have. I mean, I, I, I've, I've had, I've been fortunate to work with some incredibly talented writers in the state, but that's kind of like my one, you know, everyone, everyone talks about how great Bellamy is. And, and I, I've, I've never even had the opportunity to meet him. Yeah. My Bellamy thing would be, you know, you just wanted to do whatever he asked you to do, you were going to do it. And if it meant you were going over 40 hours, you weren't going to complain and ask for overtime. You were just going to work that 45, 60 hours because you knew you wanted to get it done for him. I mean, I think back particularly, he was there when the track and field start, you know, the, the trials started to come and he had this idea of, you know, even as small as our staff was that we're going to, every event, we're going to do a form chart and you're not just going to do the form chart. You're going to go through every result from this year and last major Olympics and, you're going to get that top eight right and you're going to have their name, their PR, their season best, you know, a quote on them, what college they went to type of thing that, I mean, two events would take you an entire day to do and he'd give you seven or eight events to do. And you're thinking, you know, most people would have been like, Hey, you know, put me in for overtime on this, but we all, everybody in that office, we all worked 78 hours. We had to get that done because we wanted that thing to be done so that Ron had the pride in this newspaper that, uh, not many people have the pride in the register guard ever that Ron Bellamy's had. And so when he was your boss, you wanted to make sure that it came out and looked as good as it could because you want to make him proud. Well, and it's, it's pretty incredible looking at, um, you know, his, his coaching tree per se uh, of just basically the writers that, that came out of the register guard while he was there and, and the people who talk so glowing of, glowingly about him. It's uh, again, like, like you said, it's, it's just one of the things that I feel like, uh, you know, as, as the, the media profession barrels towards whatever it's going towards, you know, you, you, you really kind of lose out on those like figurehead figures at, at some of these places. Yeah. And a guy like Ron, I'll tell you also, there, there'd be a morning where I'd hear like a, a yell and a scream coming out of his office. And I'd be like, what was it? And you'd go in there and it was like, we misspelled a name in a prep roundup and that ticked him <laughs> off. You know, it was like, Hey, we got enough people in here that we shouldn't be able to miss in these names, especially over, you know, if it's the same name that we've done before or something, but he took a pride that every part of that newspaper was going to be really good. Um, that just, you know, nobody puts a high point on preps anymore in a newspaper because oh, it's just too much to keep track of this and that. But Ron made sure whether it was women's sports, prep sports or duck football and basketball, that everything got the same respect and the attention that it needed. You, uh, you basically, you know, put, put your career into that paper. You, you worked your butt off heart and soul. Um, what was it like the day that you weren't working for them anymore? You know, it was weird. That building, if people have seen it over on Chad Drive, used to be just bustling. I mean, it was the downstairs was the advertising. The upstairs was the newsroom. And it was just it was your typical TV newspaper. People were running around, you know, breaking news, this and that. And it was an exciting place to be. The last few years, you know, every, all of a sudden they started subleasing it out. By the time I left. It's basically a quarter of the top story is the newsroom anymore. Yeah. So my last day I went in there and I, I was going to empty out the desk. And I told my son, who was 12 at the time, I'm like, I want you to come with me. It's kind of want to have somebody with me as I do this. I know a lot of memories are going to come back. And I went in there and looked around and I was just like, God, this is just sad. It was just sad how, I mean, you looked around and like one half is just not even subleased out. It was just like empty chairs and old cubicles. that didn't even have desks anymore. And I, 
I emptied it out. And like I say, I had, you know, I'm a sentimental guy. I had this plan to walk around and, you know, remember what happened over here and remember when I did this. And I just told Caden, I'm like, I got everything I need. Let's just get out of here. And so we walked out. It, it was more sad just because it wasn't, it was, you know, kind of a skeleton of, of the, of the bustling newsroom that it once was at the end. That's it was, it was super weird for me for uh, when I left the Oregonian in 2018, because they had already moved buildings to kind of get rid of that feeling. I mean, so the Oregonian used to kind of have its iconic building on, uh, on Broadway. And I yeah. believe, I believe 1320. Yeah. 1320. And they had been there since the fifties. I want to say, I don't know. They, they, they had been there for a long time. And, uh, I, I first interned at the Oregonian in 2010 and, and when I got to experience that building then, like it was still, they had, they had already had like one round of layoffs, but it was still, you know, most cubicles were full, you know, every, every floor of the building had something in it. And then just over, you know, by, by the time they left that building, I think just like maybe like one eighth of the entire place was being utilized. So like, I, I think some people were actually kind of happy when they, when they moved over to the new office, which is right on the waterfront, just because it didn't seem like it was such a graveyard anymore per se of just unused space but then when i ended up leaving in 2018 it's just like i don't really have memories of this place like yeah it just it just kind of felt like a, a building at that point yeah that's what i thought I, I looked around and it was again it was like i don't know if, i mean i might off they'd moved us around i mean the sports department had been in pretty much all four corners of that building but none of them looked anywhere near the way it did and my <laughs> My memories of the current space were, were not all positive <laughs> for the last couple of years. So I wasn't real sentimental walking out of that part. And the parts of the of the building where I had good memories from didn't look the same. So it there, there were no tears and it wasn't nearly the sentimental journey that I expected it to be. Can you uh, can you take me through your guys's Michigan State 2015 road trip? The infamous <laughs> uh, the infamous shit show of the register guard. <laughs> that was awesome. It uh, well, we came up with a great idea to go cover Michigan. And Michigan, Oregon State, which was Jim Harbaugh's first game and Gary Anderson's first game at Oregon State, and then go hit the Oregon Michigan State game that night because I think it was an hour and 10 minutes in between. And we were young and excited journalists to go cover two football games in one day. And so it started when we flew in the night before and everything gets delayed. So we get at like 11, and some woman grabs Thorburn's bag instead of her own and takes off. And so Thorburn's there realizing my bag's gone. It's like 1155. We're the last flight in for the night. And we're like, all right, well, we'll come back in the morning. He's like, all our press credentials are in there for both these games. So we're like, so the woman like announces <laughs> over the loudspeaker, you know, and some woman comes running back and Ryan's fate, you know, and she's like, I'm oh, sorry, grab the wrong one. I'll just grab my other one. And so fortunately that saved us. So then the next day we go to Oregon state and Michigan, which ends up Oregon state starts off good, but then Michigan pulls away. So by end of third quarter, like we got to go. So I had booked a hotel called the Magnus, and I believe it was in Lansing, Michigan. And it, uh, I had booked, there were four of us, because Andy Nelson, the photographer, and so I booked four rooms. So we're like, let's swing by, drop our stuff off to the arena. So we get there, and it just looks like, I mean, it's basically like a, a crack hotel, maybe a, a hooker hotel. And it's just, <laughs> windows are knocked out, and they're like, Mims, what the hell were you doing? I'm like... I don't know, but at this point, I'm telling them, by the time we had an early morning flight, it's like, we're not going to be in this hotel for more than like four or five hours. It, I, so, I, I just remembered in, in the video that uh, that you guys posted of it, wasn't there was just like a pit bull in one of the yeah, windows? The pit bull at the end, yeah. <laughs> so we walk in and they're like, we don't have your reservation. And you know, normally you'd be like, what? And we're like, well, thank God. So, so I'm just like, so you didn't take my credit card. You're not charging my credit card, right? Because we'll go do anything to not stay here. And they're like, no, we don't have your credit card on file. 
So it's like, great. So then we call around and obviously everything's really expensive, but it's like, again, so we booked two rooms figuring, you know, all right, we, honestly, we're going to get back from the game at like midnight. We got to leave about five. So, but yeah, there was a pit bull in there. There was an empty uh, swimming pool and Meek had the line about, you know, they know how to take the reservations. They just can't keep them. Right. But then how cool was that game that night? You know, we get out there and it's Michigan state, Oregon, you know, a top 10 game. That was kind of Helfrich's last stand. You know, that was his last game. It's kind of a really relevant program to where if, and you know, it's, look, if Vernon's not hurt and if he hits Byron Mar- Marshall on that last pass, that Oregon team might be right back in the national title mix that year too. And, and Mark never has to go through the Alamo mold disaster. It, it, it's, it's fascinating because like I've long made the case that you could look at the, that Nebraska game the next year as one of the, like, what if Oregon decided to actually kick the extra points? Maybe Mark mm-hmm. Helfer still has his job, but like, I think if you go back to the Michigan state that year, if, if, if Vernon Adams doesn't overthrow Byron Marshall by about a foot, like I don't think you can fire a coach that went to consecutive playoff appearances for you. Like it's, it's, it's pretty incredible looking at um, the success the ducks did have for three quarters of the Helfrich period. And then just how quickly it unraveled. I, I, I it still astounds me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a Helfrich defender. In fact, I know when I think you were at the athletic and you guys did like the top pack 12 coaches and you had Cristobal through four years ahead of Helfrich through four years. And I thought I would have put Helfrich. I mean, he got to a national title game. I, uh, you know, I'm one who always believes that Mark never was fully comfortable in that. And if he could have kind of embraced that job a little bit more, maybe there'd have been some more understanding for him, but yeah, I look at, you know, it's the, it's all starts with the Alamo bowl you know, the disaster there that leads into an uncomfortable off season. And then it's Nebraska. And then it's the next week when Prukop throws the pick against oh Col- basically yeah. a winless Colorado team. I think it was those three that set it up to where, you know, even if he wins that last civil war, it wasn't going to happen, but it, it was a quick unraveling, but uh, yeah. Cause I was thinking about that today because they were talking about, you know, Orgeron may get fired this right. year. And it's like, you know, and he won the national title Mark got there, but you don't see it often after two years, but, uh, certainly, uh, certainly they saw the trajectory going down. It's, it's just funny because, you know, we, we just mentioned Chip Kelly earlier, but that season doesn't get a coach fired at Oregon probably 10 years earlier than that. I mean, granted much yeah. different, different area with Bilotti and, and everything, but, um, yeah, I mean that, that 2015 team was still really good. Like the, you, you saw the, the huge fissures in, uh, the defense on that team, some of the kind of the secondary issues that would become, uh, very prevalent in, in 16 and in parts of 17, but uh, just a fascinating duck, decade of Oregon football. <laughs> it was, yeah. No, you, you start and I mean, it's a team that's been to two national championship games in, you know, what, seven years. I mean, that's a pretty amazing, you know, not many programs do that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly has raised the expectations to the point that, like you say, four and eight used to be, all right, you can have a dip, you can have a four and eight season here and there. And we're Oregon. We can deal with that, but uh, it's reached the point now to where, when when fans turn and they're not buying tickets, and that uh, that becomes such a, a major part of the program that uh, four and eight can can lead you out. So, so we can't find you in the local newspaper anymore, but you're still a presence on on game days. Can you just tell me a little bit about what you're doing with like Fox Eugene and, and the pregame show? And, and you got a yeah, pretty, you got a pretty good lineup tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. I appreciate it. We. Uh, yeah, working Fox 95.7 KRE, which is locally owned. Steve Woodward, who's uh, a local company, runs it, and it's all sports radio. And, 
Yeah, we've been doing the Fox Sports Eugene Game Day show for this is the second uh, summer or the second football season where we do Saturdays. We pick obviously they don't have the Ducks or the Beavers, so it's not the home of the Ducks or the Beavers. So we have to rotate kind of one week. We lead into the Oregon State game time. One week we lead into the Oregon one. And then we do a post game show that comes after. But we always try to we have Matt Preem, Duck Territory and Angie Machado, a Beaver Blitz every week. So we got one on each side. And then uh, on Friday this week, we got Joey Harrington coming on. I talked to him yesterday, and he's uh, got Talking Ducks back up. So she had a good conversation with him, a lot of good stuff on Anthony Brown. And uh, then we're going to have uh, – we had one other guest. Oh, Todd McKim, who's the uh, Cal announcer who used to be in Oregon. So, yeah, it's been fun. I mean, I – you know, I, I like keeping my – you know, I do some – I do the AP stuff for men's and women's basketball when they're ranked down here and – um, do some work for some freelance stuff for Pacific Northwest golf magazine. So I've always wanted to kind of keep my, my hand in a little bit while I, you know, do something different, but the radio part's been a lot of fun. And like you said, if you're driving through town, you, you might hear my ad on the radio. Yeah, It's, uh, I don't know. I, I, I think for, for as much, I mean, nobody will complain more about the sports writing business and sports writers, even though it's the coolest job that we could potentially have out there. But, uh, um, I found that when I quit this summer at the athletic, like I, I just, I missed the writing stuff way more than I thought I would. And just kind of like, you know, doing telling stories and that sort of thing. And I, I imagine that's probably part of why that you're, you're kind of still, still around that as I mean, for, for more than a decade, pe people went to you to, to see what happened. It's kind of probably weird not being that <laughs> being like the go-to guy for that anymore. Yeah, it is weird, but you know, like I say, I, people still come up and chat about it and I love to, um, it's been weird. The timing worked out really well for me just because I didn't miss it last year because of COVID and it was like everything was on Zoom. And so, you know, and it was just such a weird year that I didn't it, miss it's, that. It sucked. You you didn't miss anything good last yeah. year. <laughs> and just seeing, you know, again, the, I mean, the Register Guard hasn't, you know, Ryan Thorburn left because of kind of some similar things that I had. So it's not like that paper's suddenly gotten better and invested. So that's made it easier for me. I mean, if suddenly that paper was great or if that job right. looked really good, it would have been harder. But <laughs> For me, yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I watch. I still love watching like the, the scrum. You know, when Matt Prem or somebody will post like the ten minute scrum video. But man, sometimes I cringe watching those things. It's like, oh god, I can't believe I was having to like squeeze something out of you know, you know, because back in the day when it was, you know, we used to be able to get some one on one stuff. They'd bring out like seven or what eight people, like? you know, and and you could grab kind of the Evan Bayless or Ryan Bay, you know, some kind of backup tight end, get them one on one, and make a good story out of it. Nowadays, it seems like, you know, even since the Zoom thing, it's just all kind of, you know, I, I feel bad for writers these days because it's like somebody says something and everybody puts it on Twitter and nobody's going to read their stories because all the information is just out on Twitter these days. Dude, I uh, I have like a I have a story on Verone McKinley that's going uh, probably the same day that this is going up. And um, I went down for availabilities this week. And and by the way, like everything that's said out availability is fair game. Like I, I'm, I'm not complaining about whatever but it's it's just it's just annoying that you know i was asking mckinley these kind of featurey type questions and then it's instantly like the transcripts online it's on like four or five different youtube pages like the the blogs have already kind of done like the what verone mckinley said after it's just really hard to like sit on something uh and that's really hard for someone uh you know for anyone that's trying to tell stories is like okay i have this like i want to make it better but it's already already been out there since Tuesday. It's just a really tough balance now, just because yeah, there's there's no one-on-one -on -one stuff like whatsoever unless you send it set it up like weeks in advance. 
Yeah, no, it's that. And I don't miss that. Like I, said, I, I don't miss the scrums. I don't miss the grind of that. Um, you know, so, but, and, and you know, I was, that reminds me, I was thinking there was one I did, I was interviewing somebody a couple of years ago, you know, I thought it was one-on-one. It was just me and him chatting and chatting. And then I turn around and like some guys walking away and it was some site. I don't even, I must say, I have no idea what site it was now, but all of a sudden somebody was retweeting and it was like the guy was just sitting there with his recorder sitting there over my shoulder, tape the whole thing and then put it up. And it was just me asking the questions. It was so bizarre. That was my first time. I was like, I got to start looking around and seeing who's around me for some of these things, but I don't miss the modern era of sports journals. And I hate to say it, but I just, like I say, zoom last year, it would make me cringe. The fact that you couldn't do a follow-up question because they had to get to the five other people in it. And even as I watch it now, it just, unfortunately, it doesn't set itself up for good storytelling anymore. It just sets itself up for kind of posts and blogs. Dude, at, a, at, a, at the scrum this week, uh, Cristobal talked and uh, I was asking him a question about Jackson Powers Johnson, who's a, who's a freshman offensive lineman. And uh, it's kind of a young media scrum. So, I, you know, it's, it's, it's not as quick as maybe it was during like the super competitive years. But so there's there's plenty of breath to get in a follow up question. And I was able to get Mario maybe like four follow up questions on, on, on Jackson and was essentially able to get enough for for a story like next week all from one interview which was has been nearly impossible like th- that wasn't possible to do at all during zoom and it, it just felt like revelat- re- revelatory to me like oh my god like this, this feels like 2015 all over <laughs> yeah I, I guarantee you though by tomorrow by friday afternoon somebody's gonna have a post up mario cristobal really thrilled about jackson oh my god. johnson Dude, season every one of those quotes are gonna already be on somebody's post the the one the one i would hate the most would be uh uh when we were at the 2014-15 rose bowl um the media day there they they had somebody doing the transcripts for basically like everybody i i think they the mics were being fed into um, some transcript thing. And, and I was asking Devin, I was doing a feature on Devin Allen and was asking him question, you know, like the mixing track and, and being a breakout star and all that. And just kind of trying to do the Devin Allen story. And I remember, I, I'm not going to say any names, but there was a national reporter who wasn't <laughs> at the Rose bowl who wrote the full feature before, like I could even get back to like my hotel room to like transcribe <laughs> stuff. And it was just like, come on, like, a, again, like, Stuff that said in a press conference, I think is fair game, but like if it's all completely like one person's angle and then you hijack that angle, I think there's some like unwritten rules. I I, I think that uh that maybe should apply. Yeah, particularly I think in Zoom where again I wasn't part of last year, but it, it felt like there were people who wouldn't even be in the press conference and then would just, you know, once it got posted up, they could go watch it and then suddenly just kind of build their own little story around that. And it's become a lot easier. That's why I respect the the folks like you and, and the ones that are out there that are doing it the right way these days. But uh, it's become a lot easier to just kind of post and post. And like I say, that, that, that by the end wasn't the journalism I enjoyed. And when your paper's not giving you the resources to do better, it uh, that was sort of the point where I thought, that's in quite what it once was. That's why I still think that like a good high school preps reporter are still some of the hardest workers in, in this industry because it's 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 one of the one things in, in journalism where you still don't get like the quotes or videos handed to you right away. Like, and you got to keep your own stats. Oh my god, I was so <laughs> bad at that. I I I covered one of uh, um. I covered like a couple Thomas Tyner games uh, when he was still at Aloha during his senior year. And you're still, you're having to take everything by hand and Tyner would get like 35 touches a game and run for like 500 something stupid yards like that. 
And then we'd get a call from his dad in, in the Hillsborough Argus office the next day being like, you were three yards off. Yeah. It's just like, oh, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The coaches have gone through the film and they found an extra couple yards in there. It's like, man, it was sitting there on a 20 degree rainy night trying to keep track with this thing. So, yeah, no, I'm with you. That's where I even look back and if I were to get back into it, which, you know, I'm not. But if if I were, I think the beat I'd want would almost be perhaps just because you can tell better stories. People are more willing to. They're excited to have you out there. They're excited to tell their stories. You don't have, you know, a bunch of people who are kind of getting in the way of it. Um, so I, I think if if I were a young person wanting to get into it, it, it's not as sexy and everybody wants to get right into the U of O stuff. But I did the press for 15 years. And I think that looking back on it now, if, if that was something that I was getting back into, that would be the thing I'd want to do. Uh, it's, it's just being able to tell a variety of stories, uh, touching like all sorts of different bases and um, one of my really good friends who I went to school with in, in Montana, uh, Roman Stubbs, he, uh, he's worked for the Washington post for nearly like the last eight or nine years. And for, uh, a, I think like six of those years, he was the Maryland beat writer. And I think he hated it. I'm not going to speak for Roman, but I, <laughs> I, I, I just don't, I don't think it was necessarily his jam. And then they moved him over to, he's like their enter, enterprise preps reporter now. And I think his work has just been so freaking good since then, because it's, you know, you're able to kind of invest in those stories and get a variety. And it's not just kind of like the daily grind of, of content publication. Yeah, that, you that would be the dream would be able to, to pop into a college thing here and there, but yeah, not have to be doing the, which backup center looks like he's going to be able to play and, you know, this type of thing and then go do a preps thing and then go do a women's basketball and kind of bump around. But I think if you were locked into one these days, that, that college beat is it's just it's not there's not as many abilities to tell the stories which is kind of the fun part of it but um yeah it's it's business changed all right we'll, we'll get you out of here on this one uh cal and oregon play tonight you got the uh the classic uh justin wilcox coming back home what any any thoughts on this one you know i think it's telling for oregon i'm, I'm a little concerned with oregon's offensive you know i i think the anthony brown thing is you know, I know fans are fans are divided on it. Coaches seem behind him. Seems like there's no doubt he's their best guy right now. Um, but just the completion percentage and things leads me to, you know, and then I'll be interested to see with Dye. I mean, I think Travis Dye can give you 20, 25 carries a game and be pretty effective. But is he better maybe getting less and kind of being that threat if you catch the ball as well? Plus, he's a guy who puts the ball on the ground a little bit. So you get him 20 carries. There may be another fumble in there. The uncertainty around whether or not Moorhead's going to be there. Those receivers don't seem to be, you know, I just think there's a lot of questions about this Oregon offense that, you know, I, I don't think they could lose. I mean, they could lose to Cal. I, I think they beat Cal, but I think, I mean, I, I told some the other day, this kind of feels like an eight and four Oregon team to me. It's just that the Pac-12 is so bad that probably becomes a 10 and two team this year. It is kind of feeling just slightly, not to the full extent, but a little bit like last year where Oregon started out really strong. I think they were three and zero out of the gate and then they, I think Oregon State was their first loss. And and I think there was kind of like a wide, like, oh, you know, like we're better than this. Like the like there's way more talent. They'll they'll get their stuff fixed away, like the the Pac-12 title and all that still in play. But they ended up losing three out of their last four games. Like it wasn't a consistent team at all last year. And and I think people kind of just glossed over that fact going into this year, just maybe chalking it up to the pandemic. But uh, a lot of the inconsistencies that we've seen on offense of last year have have continued to show this year. Yeah, I agree. And like I say, if, you know, if they had lost the Ohio State game, people would have been like, all right, well, just kind of reset and go for the Pac-12 title. But once you win that Ohio State game, suddenly it became, 
all right, this is a team in the national title hunt. And man, that conference doesn't look very good. If, if you can beat Ohio state, you can certainly beat everybody else on there, which leads to then the disappointment of Stanford. And, you know, yeah, that I told somebody actually when they beat Ohio state, I said, you know, the one thing this is going to do is it's going to add to the aggravation of Oregon fans as jubilant as they are today. When that first inevitable loss comes, it's going to be like, Oh, it's even worse since you had that. But, you know, it's a team that could still, if they went out, would be in the mix for the, for the, for the title. I just, it's hard for me to look at that team right now, the way they're working, uh, you know, offensively in particular, and just think that that's a team that's going to go, you know, a 12 and one. But the one thing that leads you to think they could is you look at that schedule and say, where's the loss on there? I mean, at you, I mean, you thought at one point, boy, at Utah, at Oregon state that or at uh, Washington, that's a tough couple road trips down the end, but those teams don't look anything right now. So this, the conference is the one thing that Oregon has going for it the most right now. Yeah, that's that's the thing is I, I don't peg Oregon as a as a one loss team, but I think that they're better than every single team they're going to play the rest of the year. So we'll see how it plays out. <laughs> yeah, I was doing the same thing on radio last week. I was saying with Oregon State, I was like, you know, if they beat Washington State, the way this schedule sets up, they got Colorado, Cal. I mean, this could be a seven and O team going into ASU and Oregon at the end of the year. It's like you you look at the con- I'm sure every team in the conference looks at their schedule and is like. Well, we can beat every team on this because you know, there's just nobody in the conference that's that's any good, you know, that, that looks really good. And like I say, Oregon State schedule with ASU and Oregon at the end, we were having that discussion last week. God, if they win this, they could get to seven and zero. But the other teams, Colorado is probably the same way, looking and thinking, oh, well, we can beat them and them. And I was saying the same thing with Todd McKim today. On we were looking at the Cal schedule. They have home against Colorado, Oregon State next, and then at Arizona. It's like they're looking at it like, God, if you can beat Oregon there's a four game winning streak potentially coming there. So I think it's, you know, what's the old poker saying? If, uh, if you get to the table and you can't find the sucker, it's you. I feel like everybody gets to the table in the pac 12 and thinks, I think we can beat everybody around here, but eventually somebody's not going to win. Can you, uh, can you tell everyone where, uh, where they can find your work at? They can find my work at, uh, Fox sports, Eugene. And, uh, I don't, I don't pimp much else. I've got a, my Twitter is, uh, Steve Mims underscore NYL. For all your life insurance, long-term care needs, I'm your guy. And uh, come, uh, come seek me out. I'd love to. I'd uh, love to sit down and talk some duck football and uh, make sure we got you uh, properly insured and your family properly protected, Tyson. Most, most definitely. And uh, I need to get down there and have a beer with you one of these days, man. It's it's, it's very long overdue. Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, I'm always around. So one of these days, when uh, especially if you're in one of those scrums, I would think that would probably need to be after that. So if uh, if you're coming down and uh, and can get one before or after, let me know. You know the the the, the I five corridor expense account just isn't nearly as deep as it was <laughs> when I was with the athletics. So these these trips have been a little tougher to put together. But uh, um, first couple of rounds on me. <laughs> well, thanks again, thanks again, Steve, for your time. This this was great, and uh, Steve Mims, everyone. I appreciate it, Tyson. That was a blast. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider.